So um, for our Easter sermon series, we've been teaching on what the early church referred to as the Missio Dei, uh, the mission of God. And the core idea behind the idea of the mission of God is essentially this, that when people experience the resurrection of Jesus, then they join the mission of God. I mean, it always happens that way. There really uh, aren't any exceptions. You experience the resurrected Jesus, this paradigm-shifting, life-altering reality, and the consequence, the ramification, the result is I, you join the mission, right? It's, it's so uh, life-changing that it, it catapults people into joining this big restorative mission of God. So in other words, when those who follow Jesus and then watched in horror and disbelief as he was arrested and tortured and killed, when they see him rise again, when they see him alive again on Easter, on the, the day of the resurrection, something changes in them. Uh, in other words, when what you thought was over isn't over, <laughs> It changes everything. When the story that you thought had died comes back to life again, this alters everything. When people experience the resurrected Jesus, their whole story changes. Uh, the story that they were living, whatever that story was, maybe it was the personal success story. Maybe it was the national pride, nation state kind of story. Maybe it was the my life is damaged story. When the story that they were living gets replaced by a truer story, a more meaningful story, a more powerful story, the story of the resurrection, then everything changes. And, and it's, it's, it is the fact of the resurrection, specifically, the fact that Jesus rises from the dead, that when embraced, that's what launches people into the Missio Dei, into the mission of God. So this is what we see happen over and over and over again in the, at the end of the gospel accounts in all of the post-resurrection encounters that people have with Jesus, uh, such as the road to Emmaus story, which is a core story for our community, where two guys whose hearts are desperately, um, their hearts and their hopes are, are, are devastated, they're desperately disappointed, they encounter the risen Christ at a meal, <clears throat> and then they, what's the first thing they do? They push back from the table and they run back to the place of their disappointment, of their pain, of their discouragement. They become missionaries. They join the mission of God. That's the first thing they do after they become convinced that Jesus has risen from the dead. All right, so that's the Missio Dei. That's the mission of God. And what I want to do today is share a couple of thoughts about how the Missio Dei or the mission of God relates to the reality of suffering. How does God's mission and suffering work together? How do these two things coexist in the same room? How do they actually intersect in the same life? Is, is this even possible? The truth is that these two realities, the mission of God and human suffering, they go together. They often go together, but we often struggle to figure out how they fit we often struggle to reconcile how they could possibly be in the same place and at the same time. And this struggle is often really destructive to us personally, as well as to others. In other words, if we don't have some, some sense of how these two coexist, the mission of God and suffering, then we fall into either-or thinking that simply doesn't cut it in real life. So either we can't deal with suffering, which is a problem because life is full of it, or 
The only version of Christianity that we can accept is all about being happy and having fun all of the time. And this happy fun version of Christianity looks really good, but the problem is it's really flimsy. Okay? It doesn't actually make a difference when the real life hits the fan. It just doesn't cut it. So it's a struggle to know how the mission of God and suffering go together. But it is a struggle that we simply have to figure out. We have to endure this struggle. We have to figure out how to navigate this together. In one morning this last week, one morning between 10 a.m. and noon, um, I got six phone calls from folks in our church community. Six phone calls. Some days my phone never rings. On this day, it rang over and over and over six times in two hours. And the calls were about different issues, and they were from different people going through all kinds of a variety of, of situations. But here's the thing. Each call was from a person who knows and loves God. They're part of this church community. They've committed their life to the mission of God. And each one of them was from someone who was suffering. <laughs> Those are the two things they had in common. They were all embracing the mission of God, and yet they were all experiencing suffering. Six conversations, six different people, six different issues, all of them living for God, all of them hurting. Now, this should not be surprising to us. This is a common combination, suffering and the mission of God. And we shouldn't be surprised that these two things go together. But often what we say reveals that we are surprised that they go together. We say, what is going on? We say, why isn't this working out? Right? As though this is some never-before-experienced dynamic of somebody who loves and follows God experiencing suffering. We are surprised. And the fact that we are surprised seems to be especially troubling to Jesus. The fact that we are surprised seems to be especially troubling to Jesus. So let's talk about the mission of God and suffering, and then let's talk about why we typically refuse suffering, and then finally why we might choose instead to endure it. All right? Let's look at a really important part of the Emmaus Road story. It's Luke chapter 24, verses 25 and 26. We've never really focused on this part of the story. Let me kind of summarize the story up until this point to give you a context in case you're unfamiliar with it. The story goes like this. It's, the, it's Easter morning. It's the day Jesus rose from the dead, but nobody knows it yet. And two of the people who had followed Jesus for a long time have had it. This is the final straw. The fact that Jesus died on Friday night breaks them at a level that they've never been broken before. And so they leave their community. They, they leave. And, and as they're leaving Jerusalem, where the rest of the followers of Jesus are, they encounter on the road, they're headed to this place called Emmaus, and they encounter on the road this third traveler. The third traveler actually joins them from, from behind and then slows his pace down to join them in conversation. The third traveler begins by asking them a question. The question accesses such a painful reality in their life that they stop walking. <laughs> and they look down. The question was, what are you talking about? They explain a little bit of what they're talking about. And then he says, tell me more about what you're talking about. They're pretty incredulous. They can't believe he hasn't heard everything that's happened to Jesus. And so then they summarize what they know about Jesus. 
Ironically, they're talking to Jesus in case you've missed that, but they don't know that it's him yet, right? So they say, yeah, it's, it's, there was this guy, Jesus, and he was powerful and what he, what he said and what he did. And, and then all of our leaders, they handed him over to, to be killed and they crucified him on, on Friday night. But we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. I mean, we'd placed everything, all our hopes in, 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 this, guy's, in this guy's mission, and then it's really weird. You know, some of our women went to the tomb this morning. They didn't find his body. And, and then some of our companions went. They kind of affirmed the story. And there's angels and empty tombs. And, and it's been three days since all of this happened. And, and they're just confused. And it's into this that Jesus finally speaks. Up until this point in the story, Jesus has only asked two questions. But now he brings it. And it's probably the, one of the more harsh statements you hear Jesus speak even though there's a tenderness that surrounds it at the same time. This is what Jesus says in verse 25. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? So let's break this down just a minute, because this is, this, is this is pretty intense. He begins by saying, how foolish you are. And this is related to sort of intellectual comprehension. He's like, you've missed it. You should have understood you didn't understand. There's a fundamental lack of intellectual understanding here. There is an inability to comprehend what has happened. You are not wise. You are foolish, right? You should have understood this up here. And then he takes it to another level. You're slow of heart to believe. So there's not just an intellectual problem of understanding here, but there's a slowness or a dullness of your spiritual capacity as well. Like your soul or your heart or the seat or the center of your spiritual awareness is stupid. It's, it's dull. It's not up to speed. You, sh you should have the ability to perceive things that you haven't perceived in this yet. One of Jesus' most famous statements is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Here he's referring to the Emmaus travelers, not as those who are pure in heart, but those who are slow of heart. Right? So not only do you not fail or do you fail to understand intellectually, but you're not getting this on a spiritual level either. And what are they not getting specifically? What are they not understanding? That the Savior had to suffer. That's what they don't get. That the Savior had to suffer. And truly, Jesus seems a bit exasperated at this point. Because this is not a new idea. This combination of the mission of God and suffering, they've gone together for, for like 2,000 years. And yet they're still having trouble with it. The prophets have been talking about this for a very, very, very long time. A really famous example is Isaiah 53. This like about 800, 900 years before Jesus, this prophet of God who is foreseeing the ministry of, of the Messiah. And he says, I'll just read part of it. Surely he, referring to the one who would save Israel, bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was, was laid upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
So Christ's statement to the travelers, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Don't you realize this is part of the story? What things did he have to suffer? Betrayal? Torture? On the cross? And ultimately death? So this suffering that we talk about pretty commonly and with quite a bit of ease, it was not optional for Christ. The suffering was not a bonus feature of the ministry of Jesus. No, he had to suffer. He had to suffer specifically in order to defeat sin and the power of sin in the world and in order to bring salvation to the world. That's why he had to suffer. In other words, Jesus had to suffer in order to accomplish the mission of God. And that's simply what it took to get the job done. Jesus didn't seek suffering. In fact, he prayed to the Father that the cup of suffering would be taken from him. In this brutal scene that we get a peek into uh, in John's gospel, the night before uh, Jesus is arrested, Jesus is praying alone in the garden. And he basically says, is there any other way, Father, that this can happen? Is there any other way we can bring salvation to the world? Is there any other way we can defeat sin? But in the end, Jesus does not refuse suffering. In the end, he endures suffering in order to accomplish the mission of God. And so, my friends, here's the mystery. To us, it feels very ironic. It almost seems contradictory. But this is the mystery. The mission of God is to end suffering. And yet it is suffering that accomplishes the mission of God. The mission is restoration, right? The mission is to end suffering. And yet, it is suffering that accomplishes the mission. So a couple more thoughts. Why do we refuse suffering, and why might we choose instead to endure it? One reason we so strongly resist suffering, even in some cases refuse to suffer, is simply this. It just doesn't fit into our story. Sorry. It just doesn't fit into my story. It's not part of my plan. I think I've said this probably 10 times out loud this week. I don't have time to be sick. <laughs> I don't have time to be sick, right? This is not part of my plan. Of course it's not part of my plan. Who plans to have pain, right? Who plans to suffer? I don't plan to suffer. I plan to get stuff done. And so when I suffer, it gets in the way of things. Nobody sits down on a Sunday afternoon, opens up their calendar and says, okay, well, Monday night, I'm going to have dinner with friends and family. And on Tuesday, I'm going to start this really meaningful project at work. And on Wednesday, I plan to suffer deep depression and regret, right? <laughs> Nobody does that, right? Nobody plans to suffer. It's not surprising that we resist suffering, but it is pretty amazing how intensely we resist it, isn't it? I mean, we are violently opposed to discomfort on almost every level, right? It's amazing. So consider the Emmaus story. Have you ever wondered why these two travelers are leaving Jerusalem and they're heading for Emmaus? Not Bethlehem, not Nazareth, not Galilee, where they're probably from. Oh, man, I have. I've wondered this for years. Why Emmaus? I've read almost nothing interesting about why they're going to Emmaus. Um, one theory that gets repeated, unfortunately, all the time is that there are hot springs in Emmaus, 
And so maybe they were just so stressed out, they needed a spa day, you know, needed a little rest. Does that sound like a modern theory? That is a thoroughly modern theory, okay? There's hot springs. I don't know how you say, why there's British to hot springs, I don't think. So anyway, recently I discovered something new about Emmaus. At least it's new to me. Maybe you've heard this before. I've never heard this. I've never read it. I, I, it's, it's actually true. I verified it. 166 BC. There's this group of Jewish warriors, and they attempt a revolution against the Seleucid government, the Greek government, which was at the time controlling the Jews. And the rebellion was led by this guy named Judah Maccabees, known as Judas the Hammer, Judah the Hammer. And the rebellion's called the Maccabean Revolt, right? And it, it figures prominently in Jewish history. This is what Hanukkah's all about. Heard of Hanukkah? This is what the menorah, like the candelabra thing that you see as a big symbol in Jewish faith is all about. So I was aware of that. But what I, what, what I recently learned is this, that in 166 BC, Maccabean rebels, they won a decisive victory over their oppressors in Emmaus. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, so it's a famous moment of victory and it takes place in Emmaus. In fact, it's referred to in this book called First Maccabees, which happens to be included in the Orthodox Bible and in the Roman uh, Bible. So it's referred to there, it's referred to as the Battle of Emmaus. And it is famous and it looms large in the memory of the Jewish people. So this victory is etched in their cultural expectation, in their cultural memory. And it was still there, of course, in Jesus' day. It had been a while, but not too long. So the Battle of Emmaus, it was, it's important because it was, the, it was the last legitimately successful attempt to free the Jewish people from their oppressors. So it's been 166 years but that longing for freedom has not gone away. In fact, political revolution is probably the most common narrative attached to Jesus by his followers, right? This is what they expect him to do. So the Emmaus travelers, they make this very clear. They say, we had hoped he was the one who would redeem Israel as they walk to Emmaus. They, they hoped he would be the next Judah Maccabee, right? This is so telling. And this is why I tell this story. Their hopes in Jesus have been shattered. However, maybe at some deep level, they're still holding on to their story, right? Their expectation, their hopes. The Jesus as political revolutionary story, that didn't work out for them. So they're leaving the Jesus part. They're leaving the Jesus community behind, the rumors of empty tombs, angels, witnesses, and instead they're going to the last place that their story of revolution worked out the way they wanted it to. They're heading to a place where at least the memory of that story is most alive. They're dropping the Jesus part of the story because the Jesus part didn't work. And they're sticking with their part of the story, which is the revolutionary part. Isn't that fascinating? Have you ever been to Graceland? It's a weird place. <laughs> it's full of people who are, frankly, mostly willing to admit that Elvis is dead. 
but they're going to the place where his memory is most alive. I think it's kind of like this. We're going to go there. We're going to like wave the flag. You know, they think like we do. They talk like we do. They want the same thing there. That's the place at least where the memory of this story that we want to live is most alive. Their story was a story of Jesus' military hero. That story has reached a dead end. Instead of crushing the Romans, Jesus gets crucified on a Roman cross. And there's just no room for that in the Emmaus Traveler's story, in their worldview. They are refusing to suffer. It has no place. So rather than to stop when this happens or stop when the empty tomb is discovered and consider how suffering might somehow fit in the mission of God, they're going to a place where this doesn't need to happen. It's all about revolution, and they're going to resist suffering. And they resist suffering for the same reason we resist suffering. And it's this, friends. We just don't see how it fits. We just don't see how it fits in God's plan. We just don't see how it fits in God's mission, in God's story. Now, it's understandable to resist or to even reject suffering. It's understandable. Of course we understand that. But here's the problem with that. At least one problem with that. The problem with refusing suffering, um, if, we refu- if, we, if we reject the idea that suffering has a role or a place in life or in the Christian faith experience, if, if, if our understanding of the faith has no room for hardship, no room for failure, for pain, for suffering, if our experience only allows space for blessing and prosperity, then when we reject the suffering, we are in effect rejecting the resurrection story at the same time. Okay. When we say suffering has no place here, we're also saying, and neither does resurrection. Jesus said this just a couple days before he was killed. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. What's the point of a kernel of wheat? Feed something, right? But he says, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. If it dies, though, it produces many seeds. And then Jesus goes on to say, now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. This is just a few days before he's killed. Father, save me from this. Jesus says, no, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. So he says, Father, glorify your name. That's in John 12. So the problem with refusing suffering at all costs is that it removes the necessary pre-existing context and requirement for resurrection. We're so adverse to suffering and we put so much effort into insulating ourselves from it. We don't want to experience even, we don't even like the idea of a single seed of wheat falling into the ground. Like, let's not let that happen to my life. I don't want any of that in my life. And the resurrection story is the truest story. The resurrection story is the most meaningful story. And the resurrection story is the only story that's strong enough to carry the human heart all the way home. But the resurrection story, it includes suffering, right? It includes suffering doesn't reject suffering. It faces it, it enters into it, and it carries our heart through it. That's what it does. That's what the resurrection story does. It's the source of hope in the suffering. It's the only source of hope that can't be defeated. 
The resurrection story doesn't pretend that there is no suffering. It bravely endures the suffering with hope. It's understandable why somebody would refuse to suffer. It's understandable when somebody avoids suffering at all costs, when somebody tries to live a life that is free from pain. I get it. I, I, I get it, and it's understandable. But to try to live a life that is free of suffering is to choose to live a story that is unaffected by the truest story, which is the story of the resurrection. Okay, the fact is that the Emmaus travelers, before they recognize Jesus, they are living a false story. That's the truth. They are living an obsolete reality. They are living a version of life that is yet to be affected by the truth of the resurrection. They're living like a pre-resurrection life. And this is understandable given their circumstances, but the irony of their story is precisely that living without hope is now outdated. That's an obsolete version of life. There's been an update. Jesus has risen from the dead. It is no longer necessary to live a life without hope because of the resurrection. So to choose to live a life in that way is a decision that is no longer required of any of us because of the resurrection of Christ. So instead of refusing suffering, instead of trying to fabricate some experience of life that is so insulated that you're somehow free from suffering, we might choose an alternative. We might choose an alternative. We might choose simply to endure suffering. Why might, we, why might we make that conscious choice? Two reasons really quickly. One, if, if we would choose to endure suffering potentially if we understood suffering to be part of a bigger picture, part of a bigger story, right? And some of you already do this. You already do this. You go without some comfort now in order to save some money for later because you realize that this momentary suffering is just a part of the story. It's not the whole story. Or you exercise now, you train, you run, you get up early, you go to the gym a few mornings a week or whatever because you understand that the suffering, a little bit of suffering now, it actually is just a part of a bigger story called long-term health that is what you're kind of going for, right? Or some of you have endured the pain of childbirth and some of you would do it again because you understand that suffering is just part of the bigger story of bringing life into the world, right? Pain is not the end. It's just a necessary part of the bigger story, the bigger picture. So we already get this concept on several levels. One, re one reason that we might choose to endure suffering, to go through it honestly, is because we understand that suffering is just a part of the bigger story. There's a bigger story, and then a second reason we might choose to endure suffering is this. We might choose to endure suffering if we have others, not just ourselves, in mind. It's no wonder that individualistic cultures are those who are most passionately trying to avoid suffering. Because if it's all about me, I'll just do what feels good. If it's all about me, I'll just do what feels good. But if I have others in mind as I go to school... And if I have others in mind when I go to work, and if I have others in mind when I face temptation, and if I have others in mind when I see the brokenness of the world, as I live this life, I might endure some painful things because my sacrifice 
might help somebody else. So that's my motivation. That's why I might choose to endure some suffering. And Paul writes this really interesting statement in one of his letters that reflects this perspective. He says this, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I mean, what could, this is crazy, I mean, what could possibly be still lacking in regard to Christ's sufferings? Did not he suffer the ultimate suffering, right? Is there anything lack? Well, what is still lacking is in regard to a person's personal experience with, with the suffering and the salvation that Jesus offers. So Paul is willing to endure suffering himself if by doing so he can effectively communicate the love of God for people. He will go through some pain for the church because that's what's left to be established to connect the love of God with people is an actual somebody who will sacrifice that reveals the bigger sacrifice that Christ made. Okay, so to sum up, we might choose to endure suffering if we understand that suffering is part of a bigger picture. It's not the end. It's part of a bigger picture. And we might choose to endure suffering if, if we have others, not just ourselves in mind. Okay, just a couple more thoughts, right? I'm not saying that suffering is always good, and I'm not saying that God wants you to suffer. If you're being abused, or manipulated, or mistreated by someone, hurt by someone, I want you to get help to get out of that situation. I'm going to be real clear about that. You're not called to be some sort of martyr in some sick and twisted manipulative situation. I am saying that we live in a very broken world, and because it's very broken, suffering happens. It happens a lot. But suffering and the mission of God are not mutually exclusive. It's not an either-or situation. It's actually a both-and situation. In fact, joining the mission of God almost, cert almost certainly will mean that you will enter into some kind of suffering as a result of being part of God's mission, that you will not run from it, but you will choose to enter into it. There will be some sacrifice that you are called to make if you are a part of the mission of God. And you will make that sacrifice in order to end suffering, right? Kind of like a firefighter who runs into the building instead of running out when everybody else is, okay? Does a firefighter want to suffer? No. Does the firefighter see suffering as good? No. It's just that the firefighter realizes that to refuse suffering is to choose not to participate in the rescue story. Okay. To refuse suffering is to opt out of whatever salvation is going to happen in there. To, to refuse suffering is to say, I will not participate in the story of life overcoming death. Okay. So the firefighter knows Suffering is not the end, it's just a part of the bigger story. And the firefighter knows enduring some pain is worth it because it will help somebody else. And so in a world that is full of fear and full of despair, may we be inspired by an image of real courage and real hope. And may we endure suffering courageously and may we embrace at the same time the holy mission of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.